You're listening to the Selling Energy Podcast, turbocharging the success of sales professionals around the world. Here's your host, Wall Street Journal bestselling author and award-winning sales trainer, Mark Jewell. If it's not about saving money, what is it about? Whenever I do a national keynote speech or customized coaching session for a sales team, I make it a point to speak with several rock stars in the client's organization who are really knocking the ball out of the park. The highest performers always have offering specific lessons that the rest of the sales team could learn for increasing their sales. A large controls manufacturer recently asked me to present a general session keynote at its national sales meeting. As I was preparing my remarks, I had the pleasure of speaking with one of the rock stars. I asked him, to what do you attribute your success selling controls in the laboratory segment? He responded that he specialized in controlling the energy used to power exhaust hoods in critical environments like labs, and that by doing so, he could reduce a facility's energy use by more than half. In fact, he gave me the example of a lab for which he had reduced the bill by more than $350,000 per year. I was certainly impressed. However, I was left wondering why a lab that was large enough to save that much electricity annually in its fume hoods, a lab that probably did several hundred million dollars of research a year, would take the time away from testing drugs or curing cancer to focus on something as obscure as fume hood fan energy savings, particularly when they'd have to interrupt their operations for several days to implement whatever savings maneuver this rock star ultimately proposed. The rock star set me straight. He said, you don't understand. When I propose a project that will save $350,000 a year, I reframe it as a project that is the equivalent of receiving $350,000 in grants from the National Institutes of Health that my client now doesn't have to apply for and win. Then I reframe that as being enough grant money to fund several more researchers' full-time salaries. In fact, since my gear will continue producing savings for 20 years, it's really the equivalent of getting that client $7 million in quote-unquote grants that they neither have to apply for nor win, all for the temporary inconvenience of working with me for a week or so to change out the lab's fume hood controls. Now granted, the $7 million back of the envelope calculation considered neither inflation nor the time value of money. Still though, this reasoning was really compelling and it connected the dots for a busy lab director who had to be convinced to invest the time and money to focus on something other than finding a cure for cancer or whatever else his team happened to be working on at the time. Tips for pitching. Every energy efficiency sales professional should have a handful of elevator pitches prepared, each one customized for a specific audience type. Here are some things you need to keep in mind as you prepare your elevator pitches. Your elevator pitch should be short and to the point, humorous, memorable, interactive, say something and pause for a response or ask a question, conversational. Your elevator pitch should not be a scripted speech, a pitch in the traditional sales pitch sense or longer than 15 seconds. You want to avoid fluff words that don't really mean anything like finest, established, foremost, leading, pioneering, or original. Energy efficiency and building value. If you're selling energy efficiency solutions in the built environment, you might find yourself being asked by your prospects, will this energy efficiency upgrade increase the value of my building? Now this could be a difficult question to answer because it varies from situation to situation. The first thing you should do is determine whether you're dealing with an owner-occupied building or a non-owner-occupied building. In an owner-occupied building, there are at least two ways to connect enhanced energy efficiency to increase value. The first approach relates to the value of the real estate itself. If an appraiser notices that the building has been outfitted with state-of-the-art energy efficient equipment, he will likely assign the building a higher value per square foot. 
Those improvements insulate the purchaser from deferred maintenance, technological obsolescence, future regulatory imperatives, occupancy comfort issues, and similar concerns. The cost approach to appraisal should consider the quality of the installed systems. And moreover, the market comparison approach to appraisal should give the appraiser ample justification for adjusting the value per square foot higher when recently sold similar properties lacking those amenities are used for comparison. The other way to connect the dots between enhanced efficiency and higher value focuses on enterprise value rather than the real estate itself. Let's assume you're a publicly traded company whose stock price is conditioned on earnings per share and the price per earnings ratio that the market has presently assigned to the company based on a variety of factors beyond the scope of the short essay. If energy efficiency lowers operating expenses, earnings increase, which means earnings per share increase, which means at a stable P.E. ratio, the share price increases, which means at a constant number of shares outstanding, the market capitalization of the enterprise increases. Now, admittedly, a lot of dots to connect. However, this positive correlation between enhanced efficiency and higher enterprise value can be described. And this analysis doesn't even consider the earnings increase an enterprise may enjoy as a function of the non-utility cost financial savings, the things like productivity benefits resulting from improved thermal comfort, indoor air quality, etc., that we discussed earlier in the book. In income-producing buildings, connecting efficiency solutions to improve building value is a whole lot easier. The appraiser will likely focus on a number called net operating income, or NOI. When the appraiser feels comfortable with that number, he's going to divide it by a market-considered capitalization rate. The higher the NOI, the higher the value of the building, assuming a stable cap rate. Now, perhaps you secured that higher net operating income by raising the rent, because the building is now more comfortable or the tenant's operating expenses are reduced. Perhaps the building enjoys higher occupancy because the building is now more attractive to occupy or more people renewed their leases. Perhaps you reduce the landlord's share of operating expenses. As long as the NOI is higher, the appraiser should reflect a higher value at a stable cap rate. That's what you need to do. Increase net operating income before the appraiser evaluates it. No need to worry about whether the appraiser has the technical background to recognize a magnetic bearing chiller or variable frequency drives or whatever other efficiency enhancements that were installed. Keep all of the above in mind and you'll be better prepared to demonstrate how your efficiency solution might very well support higher property value and or higher enterprise value. Selling with stories and referrals. Telling a story about helping another customer is a great sales strategy. It demonstrates your willingness to be a good Samaritan. It also feels great to be able to tell prospect, we do this all the time, we can do it for you as well. Having a list of referrals to provide is ideal. It reduces your prospect's perceived need to perform elaborate due diligence themselves. They take it for granted that the customers on the list already performed their own due diligence, and it's even more assuring that they have already used your product or service successfully. Think about all the purchases you make, everything from cars to food to movie tickets. Think how comforting it is to hear someone else whose opinion you trust say, I had a positive experience with that product. Imagine for a moment what your life would be like without consumer reports, J.D. Powers, Yelp, or Amazon reviews. How much more difficult would your selections be if there were no five-star ratings? Without all that proxy due diligence at your fingertips, could you even buy 10% of the stuff you now buy with confidence? Do yourself a favor. Assemble a large repertoire of positive stories and references to share with your prospects. It's a great way to help your prospects reach their own affirmative decisions with confidence.
ask for the referral. We all know how valuable referrals are for generating new business. One of the best times to ask for a referral is right after the sale or once the installation is complete. They bought your product or service, they're happy with the decision, and you haven't done anything wrong yet. <laughs> they're more likely to give you a referral if you frame it as a win-win situation. For example, John, I have a question for you. Can you think of anyone else in your circle of friends or colleagues that could benefit from, as you complete the sentence, pay close attention to the wording. You might complete the sentence with, having the same sort of enhanced visibility to energy uses that you now have throughout your portfolio. Focus on the value that caused your customer to buy. Not features, not benefits, value. You want to know if anyone else your customer knows might appreciate the same value. This is no time for haphazard word choice. You don't want to come across as saying some variant of, do you know anyone else who might want to buy some controls from me so I can earn another commission? Asking the question the manner originally suggested plants the idea in the customer's mind that they could be of genuine service to a friend by offering them something that they know is worth the investment. They get to prove to other people that they were smart enough to find you and implement your solution. You give them social currency by allowing them to be a hero in the eyes of the person they chose to refer. As much as receiving a referral may benefit you financially, don't make it about you, make it about them. Make the cards count. Think back to the last networking event you attended. If you were focused on the job at hand, you probably left with at least a couple dozen business cards of people you met at the event. Unless you have a superhuman memory, it's unlikely you'll be able to remember details about every person with whom you exchanged cards. So how do you make the business cards count? As soon as you turn away from the person, write three pieces of information on the back of his or her card before you stow it away. Number one, where you met. Number two, what you talked about, particularly anything funny or otherwise memorable, because this can be used when you follow up with the person. And number three, what the next step is. In my experience, most people don't take the time to write these detailed notes, so be sure to jog their memory using your notes when you follow up with them. One great technique that my wife uses for making sure people remember her is to present two of her cards to everyone. She'll hand someone two cards and say, here's my card, and here's an extra one in case you lose the first one. <laughs> That comment inevitably evokes a chuckle from the prospect, and more importantly, when her new acquaintance goes through the stack of cards he or she collected during the event, my wife will be the only person with two cards in the pile. This strategy is memorable, and it distinguishes you from the rest of the pack, pun intended. The Right Metrics one of the major topics I cover at any of my financial analysis workshops is the importance of using proper rather than popular metrics when seeking project approvals. Your choice of financial metrics could very well determine whether a proposed project earns a thumbs up or a thumbs down. In some cases, they may even be resistant to use proper metrics like net present value, modified internal rate return, or savings to investment ratio because they don't understand the calculations and they'd rather use what they already know. When a prospect is using substandard metrics to drive capital budgeting decision-making, especially with expense-reducing capital projects, it's your job to be the adult in the relationship and to share with that person, in a tough love way if necessary, that those metrics are not going to serve them well. Unless you know for a fact that your prospect is already using the right metrics to evaluate projects, it's a good idea to include both popular and proper metrics on your financial summary spreadsheet. This will allow you to compare the metrics they're using with the ones you recommend they start using, and through that comparison, demonstrate why they should be using more advanced financial metrics to evaluate the project. Mm -hmm.